The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I'm honored to welcome my guest, Dr. Christopher Basso. He is a professor of public policy at Northeastern University in Boston, Massachusetts. His areas of interest include food and environmental policy, science and technology policy, and the governance of emerging technologies. His newest books are Framing the Farm Bill, Interests, Ideology, and the Agricultural Act of 2014, and as editor of Feeding Cities, Improving Local Food Access, Sustainability, and Resilience. His 2005 book titled Environment, Inc., From Grassroots to Beltway, received the 2006 Caldwell Award for Best Book in Environmental Policy and Politics from the American Political Science Association. He is also coordinator of the Consortium on Food System Sustainability, Health, and Equity. I am honored to welcome Dr. Basso today to talk about specifically his work on the Farm Bill. And I should start out, Dr. Basso, simply by asking you, how does a professor in public policy become interested in the Farm Bill? Well, that's a great question. Well, actually, I'm a political scientist by training. My original training was as a scholar of Congress and of politics. So I've always paid attention to Congress, and, and I knew enough about farm bills in history because Congress has always worked on farm bills. And a few years ago, I, I was giving a course on food and politics at the Friedman School at Tufts University here in Boston, and the department chair there asked me if I'd be willing to give a talk about the farm bill to the students in the nutrition programs. And I said, sure. And I looked at the final vote on the farm bill, and I saw that it was a really interesting vote in terms of the partisan and ideological splits, and I thought, hmm, there's something different here. The old political scientist to me came back and said, you know, there's something different about this vote, because in the old days, you may have had disagreements about the farm bill, but if you were a farm belt representative, at the end of the day, you voted for it. And what really piqued my interest was that four House members from Kansas, all Republicans, all voted against the farm bill. And I thought, wait a minute, what's going on here? If members of Congress from Kansas are voting against the farm bill, that means they're not afraid of farmers or they're not afraid of the agricultural groups in their states. So what are they doing here? What's going on? So that was the genesis of my diving back into uh, the farm bill politics. Mm -hmm. Well, the farm bill tends to have eyes glaze over when we bring it up because I think we don't, typically speak about policies at our social gathering, even though I wish we did. And I know that scholars have said we shouldn't really be calling this the farm bill. We should be calling it the food bill because Mm -hmm. it has such a big emphasis on the food we eat, especially serving lower income citizens. So how would you like to address this huge topic of the farm bill for our listeners, how should we be thinking about it? Well, I mean, I, I have to tell my students, the farm bill shapes our food system in ways that we don't even recognize. It's a collection of programs going back to the 1930s of different federal programs that promote agricultural production on one hand, 
And then on the other hand, also promotes certain nutrition programs in the same bill. And it, it shapes the food system. I mean, I, I think that the way that you really need to think about it is our food system looks the way it does in most respects because of what's contained in the farm bill. All the programs that create incentives to farmers to produce what they produce, all the uh, federal funding in the Farm Bill for agricultural research at all the big state universities, the fact that the biggest chunk of the Farm Bill is actually spent on nutrition programs, the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, for example, is the largest one, and why those programs are in the Farm Bill to begin with. Exactly. The entire edifice of U.S. food policy and the food system is really embedded in the Farm Bill. You can't understand why our food system looks the way it does, warts and all, without understanding the Farm Bill. Well, let's talk about that connection of farm programs. Conservation practices, Mm -hmm. for example, might fall under that. Commodity programs. Mm -hmm. And then let's talk about food stamps and why we have food stamps and farm programs in the same bill. Sure. Well, let me start with the last one first, because that's actually the most fascinating question. And it's also the big elephant in the room a lot of times. I mean, food stamps are in the Farm Bill, the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, which is its official name now since 2008. That's right. It was put in the Farm Bill. It started out as a separate pilot program in the 1930s to soak up agricultural surpluses. You know, farmers have a tendency to produce too much food. Ironically, the more that farmers are efficient as individual producers, if you don't have restrictions or some other way to figure out what to do with all the food, the end result is a surplus. And that pushes down farm commodity prices and bankrupts farmers, smaller ones especially. So you've historically had, since the 1930s, an array of programs, either price supports or conservation restrictions or you know, all kinds of programs designed to sort of moderate the effects of overproduction. Problem is, farmers are very efficient in the United States. They always have been. They produce too much food. So what do you do with all that food? Well, you try to increase ways for people to actually buy it. And one way to do that is to help low-income residents purchase more food. So food stamps, going back to the 1930s, they were built into the agricultural programs as a way of helping low-income residents buy more food. And that's why you had stamps, actually. You got, you, you know, in the old days, you paid maybe a dollar to get $4 in food stamps. And you could only buy certain commodities in the old days with food stamps. That's you right. Know, cheese, for example, or peanut butter or milk. I mean, of course, now you have your EBT card and you can pretty much purchase everything except, you know, and there are a lot of things you still can't buy with food stamps or with the, the SNAP program. But it's still in the farm bill because of, you know, for a couple of reasons. One, that's its origins go back into commodity programs, but also it's a political decision. Because as the agricultural sector, we've got a a really productive agricultural sector built on, what, 1.6% of Americans Mm -hmm. who actually produce the food. That's a very small number of people. As farmers, farmers as individual political force may have a lot of cultural cachet, but as in political terms, they don't have a lot of political leverage anymore in a lot of ways, which is why, for example, those House members from Kansas could vote against the farm bill and not really immediately pay for their sins because mm-hmm. they were voting against what they felt was out-of-control spending. But because there's not enough farmers in their districts to make a big, huge difference you know, for most cases. But so for the farm belt... You keep food stamps in the farm bill as a political decision because whose votes do you need? You need urban legislators. You need urban and suburban legislators, their votes, especially in the House. So you get the votes of urban and suburban members of Congress to vote for the farm programs, 
programs they ordinarily wouldn't care about by making sure they're linked to nutrition programs they do care about. Yeah. Similarly, you keep food stamps in the farm bill to force rural conservatives in particular to support nutrition programs that they might not ordinarily care about or even oppose. So it's, a, it's sort of a long-standing, very awkward marriage of convenience that everybody sort of hates, but no one lives, can live without. Do you think they should be disconnected? In political terms, it's a bad idea for both. If you're, if you're a supporter of either one of these kinds of programs, then it's a bad idea to disconnect them. If you're a supporter of farm programs, for example, and you disconnect them from nutrition programs, then there's no incentive at all for urban and suburban legislators to even care. And you leave yourself more open to people who want to just cut back spending on on farm programs. Because a lot of farm programs are seen as welfare for affluent farmers, fair or not. That's the perception. Yeah. Especially since so much commodity agriculture is large-scale farming. Yeah, it's not it's not the little Grant Wood painting of the farmer anymore. This is these are big, huge operations. So for a lot of urban and suburban legislators, their attitude is, well, why would I ever support spending on these large commodity operations, especially if I perceive that they are really producing a lot of cheap, bad food, bad in the sense of going into the food system that I have problems with in terms of just the overproduction of commodity food. Right. I mean, that's a perception. So from that perspective, if I'm the farm sector, I don't necessarily want to be on that island by myself where I might be open to cuts. Similarly, if I'm the nutrition program supporter, I know that there's a lot of people out there who believe that nutrition programs are essentially handouts to people who don't deserve them. Even though that we know that SNAP programs, for example, most people on SNAP are either elderly, disabled, or young people. You know, I mean, that's how you get there. And SNAP really is kind of cyclical for the, in terms of economic terms. You know, as the economy gets better, SNAP spending goes down. But if SNAP is seen as welfare, if it's seen as welfare, and it's on its own, not protected by the farm bill, then it would be far too easy to cut spending for people who are actually at the lower end of the economic ladder. I mean, SNAP is our second most important anti-poverty program these days after the uh, tax credits. And you have to be working to get the tax credits. And, you, and, most, and there's a chunk of people who, on SNAP who work, including veterans um, and, exactly. and active military. So, you know, it's a complicated situation. And from, if I'm a believer in either one of these things, then I don't want them disconnected. Now, if I'm a believer in sort of rational policy, then maybe I do, and I want each of them to stand on their own. But no one's willing to take that chance. It's interesting. I was part of a Missouri hunger and social welfare group years ago, and one of the women on the committee with us, she said, you know, food stamps are really a subsidy for employers who don't pay a living wage. I thought of that when you said it's seen as welfare and supporting people who don't want to work. But in reality, and you you mentioned this, you know, we've got not only veterans, but we've got people who are active in the military, Mm -hmm, as well as individuals working at big box stores who are not paid a living wage. And so I wonder if we could shift the way we think about food stamps to see them as a subsidy rather than a welfare program for the poor, but in a way a welfare program for institutions that do not pay a living wage. I mean, critics argue that food stamp, the design of food stamp program, you would never design a rational food policy around food stamps. This is essentially because it's so targeted. It's, it's essentially, some argue it's an $80 billion a year subsidy to the food system. You know, the, the, the sort of large industrial food system and retailers. I mean, the biggest redeemer of food stamps, everybody knows, is Walmart. 
Right. And the accusations are also that one of the biggest recipients of, of food stamps are people who work for Walmart. Right. Um, so fair or not, that's certainly a bit of and, – and the retail grocery store industry doesn't want to talk about that because, in fact, there may be some evidence that it's true, that people who are low wage are also depending on food stamps to supplement their income. And remember, the supplemental. So, you know, you could be working full-time and less than min- minimum wage and still not be able to afford food at the end of the month. So that's a real interesting question as to would you ever rationally design a nutrition program in the way we have now with food stamps? Or an anti-poverty program. Yeah, and so the, the accusation that it's a, seen as a bailout one way or the other for you know, the, the corporate side is certainly talked about that way. I love that you brought up the word supplemental. You know, we mm-hmm. talk about food stamps again. This is a supplemental nutrition assistance program. Right. So it's not meant to provide all of the food for the family. It is nope. meant to supplement. That's correct. So as a nutritionist and someone who sees the ravages of this commodity food system, this highly industrialized food system that is largely made up of corn and soy products, Mm -hmm. it bothers me that soft drinks are allowed to be purchased with the SNAP coupons or the EBT cards, and yet this is a very hot issue. I know that even some of my own colleagues in nutrition disagree with me, but if we are supplementing nutrition and hopefully promoting wellness in a population, we wouldn't want food stamps to be used for products that could harm public health, and yet at the farmer's market... Pumpkins are not allowed to be purchased with food stamps because they're seen as not being a food. They're seen right. as more decorative. Right. I mean, there's all kinds of, of sort of weird things in, about the SNAP program. But I think the issue about soft drinks is it really it's, that's going to be a big issue, I think, in, the, in this farm bill. That's going to be one of the areas on SNAP I suspect is going to come up. Because it's, it's sort of an interesting coalition. You've got nutritionists like yourself who really want to disincentivize purchasing high fructose corn syrup, or sugar sodas of all, of any kind, using the supplemental nutrition program. And I would say that these are people who are, they want to help. They want to help people avoid poor eating habits that lead to diabetes and obesity, those kind of things. So one could argue that that on the nutrition side, that they really want to do the right thing. They could be accused by their critics of being paternalistic. Why can't people use their money for whatever they want? You know, that's sort of the notion of freedom. Why should we be so prescriptive? And they're ironically joined on the other side by conservatives who don't want people who are on SNAP to use that money for sugar-sweetened sodas either. So there's an interesting sort of convergence here that in some respects, and this is the critique, it's not what I believe, it's it's a critique. The critique is, is that both sides are willing to be paternalistic with people who have the least if you were be, being consistent about it across the board, then you should make it hard for all people, more expensive for everybody, to buy sugar-sweetened sodas. You know, you really had, you know, not just poor people. So I think there's that interesting sort of dilemma there about, yeah, okay, it's, it's like WIC, spending on WIC, the Women's, Infants, and Children's Program. That's highly prescriptive. Absolutely. And you really, you know, you, know, you really can only get certain very prescribed things with the WIC coupons. Right. 
because that's very targeted. And yet, we would never say to somebody, uh, and again, this is the critique, that, oh, we would never say to a middle-class household that gets a deduction in its income taxes for its housing interest, it, you know, its, its interest on its mortgage, well, we, well, we won't give it to you unless you buy a certain kind of house. You know? mm-hmm. So I think there's a bit of a tension there about how we think about supporting low-income Americans in nutrition is it their freedom to use those dollars to buy pretty much what they want? Now, the food sector likes that idea because for them, food is food. So right. obviously, the food sector, you know, Pepsi and Coke say, hey, Pepsi and Coke's food too. And in moderation, everything is fine. That's their argument. And obviously, you're seeing this collision here uh, in SNAP spending in this regard. I mean, SNAP rules are so – there's all kinds of oddities there. The pumpkin one is a good example. You can't buy a pumpkin, but you could buy soda. Right. Um, you can't buy – Warm prepared foods, but you could buy cold prepared foods. I mean, you know, why is that? It's sort of weird. And so I think there's all kinds of different values coming out and all kinds of perceptions about poor people or low-income people who are, need supplemental assistance about how they should live their lives. And how should we help those at the lowest end of the income ladder help themselves? And, yet, and so there's a tension there. Mm-hmm. Listeners, if you're just joining us, you are tuned into Food Sleuth Radio, where we are speaking with Dr. Christopher Basso. He is a professor of public policy at Northeastern University in Boston, Massachusetts. And we are really focused on his latest book titled Framing the Farm Bill, Interests, Ideology, and the Agricultural Act of 2014. It was published by the University of Kansas Press in 2017. Well, let's talk about some of the special interests that influence the Farm Bill. Where is the political energy coming from to really shape this bill? Well, most of it comes from the the folks that you would expect, people whose entire industries or lives depend on these programs. So you would expect to see farmers, food producers, farmers and others who produce food, those industries that support Agriculture, you know, I mean, obviously you have an entire infrastructure of equipment and chemicals and seed companies and everybody who makes a living off supporting agriculture and members of Congress from those districts and universities who get agricultural research and all the sectors that for whom the farm bill spending directly or indirectly benefits. So obviously, if I'm the retail grocery store sector, I care about the farm bill because the ability of Americans to go to the store and buy my food may be dependent on, on some of the research that goes on in the Farm Bill or some of the insurance programs. Obviously, the farmers groups, the American Farm Bureau Federation, cares deeply about the Farm Bill. I mean, people whose livelihoods depend on these programs, directly or indirectly, care the most. Ironically, the people who care the least are consumers. You know, right. us, people eat because we don't recognize that connection. It's not we don't have an intensity of interest in the farm bill because we just go to the store and buy food. I mean, we we have for most of us, food is cheap. We don't think about food, its cost, or we know that it's available, it's convenient, it's abundant, it's diverse. We don't have a conception about how the farm bill shapes all that. I mean, right. most of us don't. I mean, increasingly, there's more interest in that. But in terms of the incentives, the incentives have always been on the side of the producer side. Yeah. You know, because that's, they see a monetary, usually a monetary or political benefit from being interested in the farm bill. Right. The rest of us are diffuse. We're out there. We're, we're the eaters out there, the consumers. And for us, it's not that intensity of interest. 
I so agree. And I was actually a guest on a radio program, and I had a caller call in, and he specifically said, I don't want to talk about policy. And I thought, this is unfortunate because it gives us an example of how removed we are from Mm -hmm. understanding how much the farm bill and other food policies influence the food on our plate, which ultimately affects our health. And from my perspective, what I have seen is that people really don't think too much about food until they get sick. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden it's, uh, well, wait a second, the foods that are making me sick and that I have to avoid are actually the cheapest in the right. marketplace. I mean, uh, yeah. that's exactly the point. I mean, why is it that, you know, again, we worry about low-income people not being able to afford fresh fruits and vegetables. Why is it that fresh fruits and vegetables are so much more expensive on a calorie-per-dollar basis than chicken nuggets that you can buy by, uh, by the big bag in a frozen food section of a discount grocery store. I mean, why is it that processed foods are so cheap and fresh fruits and vegetables are so expensive? Now, there's some reasons why it's always going to be the case. But, I mean, in no small part, part of the reason why certain foods are so cheap is that we've incentivized this massive overproduction of basic commodities. I mean, I always tell my students, I says, I flash a McDonald's burger on the screen and say, why is this only $1.25? Right. How is that possible? How is it possible that you can get a, a McDonald's burger for $1.25 or $1.29 now, whatever it is? I mean, that just boggles the imagination. Right. It shows you the benefits of a highly industrialized, highly technological system that really is very efficient in classic terms, but it also is perverse, that it's so easy to get two pizzas from Domino's for less than $10, mm-hmm. and yet to buy fresh fish <laughs> it would cost about the same. For a lot less, you know, and so it's it's sort of a perverse system in that sense. Yeah, it's and yet true. we put the, all the pressure on individuals to do the right thing. Well, if you're if you're fat or you're sick or, or you got diabetes, it's your own damn fault. That's exactly right. And, and yet we have a food system too oftentimes that is so abundant and ubiquitous around us, and we're human beings. We do pretty well surviving scarcity, but we do very badly surviving abundance. <laughs> and when you have food that's ubiquitous and fattening and tasty. And it's all over the place, and it's easy to get. You know, those of us who live in the cities, for example, we just get on our app, and within a half hour, it's at our door. Right. I mean, that's crazy. Yeah. Getting back to the McDonald's hamburger, you know, sure. being so inexpensive, I think you're asking your students the exact correct question, which is how is it possible that this is so cheap? And then we get into the issue of externalities. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how those costs related to that industrial production are transferred to the taxpayer, you and me. Well, I mean, we pay for the, we pay for all the cleanup. I mean, after all, if you're in Des Moines, Iowa right now, and your drinking water is full of nitrates from fertilizer runoff from all the farms in the region, and you're paying higher water bills to clean up the, that water before you can drink it. I mean, you know, it's, and we, I mean, I think we're beginning to realize just how much the externalities of, of massive agricultural production, and I'm talking about massive production. I'm not talking about the little one, one or two acre farmer who's building, who's growing fruits and vegetables for farmers markets. I'm talking about industrial agriculture, concentrated animal feeding operations of thousands of, of cattle where the runoff is not regulated by EPA because it's not a point source. So we end up, you know, our laws create all kinds of exemptions for agriculture that end up, unfortunately, agriculture has become a major polluting sector, whether it's water pollution, 
air pollution in terms of dust, soil degradation, the runoff uh, going, you know, that goes down the Mississippi into the Gulf of Mexico that, you know, in terms of, of, of nitrogen and, and, and phosphorus and all those things. And so we end up on the backside paying for all this in terms of cleanup or trying to remediate these problems mm-hmm. or, the, or the loss of water tables in, because the aquifers are being drained. Right, and so the problem is, is that we end up paying on the backside through t- higher taxes or through health, uh, higher medical uh, uh, expenses for these kinds of externalities. Mm-hmm. And more people recognize that than ever, but they don't have oftentimes the political leverage to do much about it. I mean, for example, most conservation programs in the Farm Bill are voluntary. Now that is, you know, we're going to pay you not to not to do certain things. Well, when commodity prices are high. Farmers have no incentive to, to do that to those programs. Mm. So yeah, they'll they'll come to the programs when when commodity prices are low, because they wouldn't have farmed it anyway. But and so they would get it, get it, get that money. But you know the, the, that the conservation programs are actually a very small part of the farm bill. Mm-hmm. You know? so in many respects we have all kinds of perverse incentives on our policy that don't you know that we that that don't inhibit the kinds of ecological damage that agriculture does, and yet we end up paying for it on the backside one way or the other. We just have a couple of minutes left. Our time has flown, and I do want to recommend your book, Framing the Farm Bill, Interests, Ideology, and the Agricultural Act of 2014, for people who really want to get into the weeds of the Farm Bill and understand it better. For those of us who are simply wanting, with a short amount of time, who simply want to be good advocates for the kind of agriculture that will protect climate, to protect future generations, our natural resources, what do you recommend that we do? Well, this is, this is where some listeners may not want, you know, some listeners may not like this, but I'll just say, you have to think politically. I mean, you have to pay attention. You have to contact your members of Congress. You know, members of Congress will pay attention to these issues if their constituents ask them to. And so if you're living in suburban or urban America, you can't just let people living in rural America have their voices heard. Now, again, that's not a, you know, I'm not suggesting, suggesting that people in rural America all automatically steer one direction. But I'm saying that especially people who live nowhere near farms have to think more politically. You know, if you care about the food system, then you've got to contact your members of Congress and say, look, I want certain values in the Farm Bill. I want more support for organics. I want more support for ecological programs. I want more support for research on, on better ways of producing food with less ecological damage. Or, you know, or I, want, you know, I want other things. That, that, and, so I, and I'm paying attention. And I think that's what matters. Members of Congress know that if their constituents are paying attention, they will pay attention too. Mm-hmm. Because it's the the incentive structure is all in favor of the production side, as you know, and that's normal. But I think it's when pe- those of us at the other end, the eaters, who are also the voters, are paying attention. That signals to Congress that we have to be sort of balancing more here. Mm-hmm. And that's happened in the past. That's why there are provisions in the Farm Bill for organics. They, they weren't there before, but more people are caring about organics. Right. And that's how it gets in there. Exactly. Well, unfortunately. Our time is up, but I want to thank you so much for touching on why the Farm Bill is so important, and I hope that we can have conversations in the future where we can dive more into advocacy and further understanding of this humongous bill. So in closing, I want to thank our listeners for joining us. I want to thank my guest, 
Dr. Christopher Basso, Professor of Public Policy at Northeastern University in Boston, Massachusetts, and author of Framing the Farm Bill, Interest, Ideology, and the Agricultural Act of 2014, produced by the University of Kansas Press in 2017. I want to remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Thank you so much, Dr. Basso, for helping our listeners understand a little bit more about this huge piece of legislation. It was my pleasure, and I'd be happy to come back sometime. Great. Thank you. Thank you.